Well, for about a year now, if you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and today we finally made it to chapter 6. So after a year's worth of study, we've made it to chapter 6, and as we've been studying Ephesians, I found that, I don't know about you, but I found just the instruction of Paul to just be very, very practical, and I've been stretched and I've been challenged every step along the way. I hope that you have been as well. But for the last several months, we have worked through chapter 5, and as we've made our way through chapter 5, we hit the high point of that chapter in verse 18 when Paul commands us there to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we examined that for a little bit, and we understood that to mean that we are to be thrust forward. We are to be led under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's to say that the Holy Spirit should be the compelling force behind all of our actions. The Holy Spirit should be the compelling force behind all of our decisions that guides us and leads us as opposed to those people who do not know God, as opposed to those people who are driven by their own lusts and by their own passions and by their own self-rule, we who know the Lord, we who are filled with the Holy Spirit are to be led, we are to be directed in every facet of our lives, we are to be led and directed completely and purely by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul goes on to tell us that the filling of the Holy Spirit causes some things to happen, doesn't he? He tells us that as we are filled or led by the Holy Spirit, a few things begin to happen in our lives. He tells us that we begin to develop right relationships with God. And when we have a right relationship with God, it will manifest itself in our hearts being filled with praise, filled with songs of admiration, filled with songs of thanksgiving, declaring the greatness and majesty of God. He says that our hearts will just be overflowing with thanksgiving for the indescribable blessing of our salvation. We learned that as we were working through chapter 5. But another thing that we found that was a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit is that our relationships with other people also become right, don't they? Relationships with others become right as well. Those relationships then take the form of believers submitting to one another. Wives, we found, will submit to their husbands in all things. We found that husbands will love their wives sacrificially, giving themselves up for them. And I'm glad to see that you all came back after we spent a couple of weeks talking about that. I know it was painful for us. But then as we came to chapter 6, we find there are some additional relationships which are also impacted by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to understand these. And so it's at this point that I'm going to take a little bit of a departure from our our typical progression through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to skip the first four verses of chapter 6, and we're going to move this morning into verses 5 through 8. And there's a reason that we're doing that. The reason that we're doing that is because next week we're going to have the kids down here, and we really want them to understand what what the Word says about children obeying their parents, don't we? So I'm going to invite you to not only bring your kids next week, but bring your neighbor's kids and as many kids as you can, because we're going to really hit them hard with with the instruction of Paul to obey your parents. It'll be great joy for all of you. I'm sure that it'll be transformational and your homes will now be filled with bliss and joy and there will be angels singing and the lights will, right? Because isn't that how it happened when we talked about husbands and wives? I'm sure it is, so I'm sure it'll happen that way for the children as well. But for today, I'm going to spring forward to verses 5 through 9 and we're going to see another relationship that is made right by our filling of the Holy Spirit. Most of you know that I'm bivocational. I have another job that I work at through the week. And in my job, I'm responsible for management of a particular set of business units. 
And part of that responsibility includes management of a relatively large group of employees. I'm responsible to make sure that each of my business units is has all the resources it needs to accomplish their particular sales goals. That's one of the things that I do. But over the years, I found that the most critical piece of the puzzle, the most critical resource for my business units to be successful is people. You believe that? The most important thing in the success of my business units is people. I have to make sure that each business unit has enough people to get all of the work done. I have to make sure that everyone is well-staffed so that we can accomplish everything that we need to accomplish. And this is probably one of the most difficult aspects of my job, one of the most difficult parts of what I do. And the reason for that, there are several reasons, but one of the reasons is that, did you know that right now in the United States our unemployment rate is about 3.7%? So what that means is that 96.3% of the people who want jobs have them. Almost everyone is working. And in Wisconsin, there's even more people working than that. Did you know that the the, the unemployment rate in the state of Wisconsin is only about 3%, which means 97% of the people in Wisconsin who want to work are working. And so that makes my job kind of hard. Can you imagine why? Because everyone who wants to work is already working, and it makes it very difficult for me to make sure that I have the right people in the right places to keep my business units properly staffed. And there's another obvious result that comes from this low unemployment rate, because almost everyone who wants to work is working. What I have to do is I often have to hire people who already have a job. And what does that mean? Typically, it means I have to pay them more, doesn't it? So I'm going to have to give them more money to entice them and to bring them in to work at my company. And so it requires that I pay them just a little bit more to get them hired. In addition to watching my staffing needs and and taking care of those things for all my business units, I'm also responsible for the profitability of my business units. You see, my ultimate responsibility at my job is to make sure that my businesses are as profitable as they can possibly be. And so that requires that I watch closely not only all of my sales and all of my margins, but it also requires that I watch very closely all of my expenses. Do you see? And so I must monitor my expenses very closely. And so what happens then is there is this balancing act. There is this fine line that I have to walk because not only do I want to make sure that I have enough of the right kind of people, which requires that I pay them, I also want to make sure that I don't pay so much that my profits begin to erode. Does that make sense? So I want to pay the good people, but I don't want to pay them too much because I don't want my profits to erode on me. I have to make sure that I'm guarding the profits. And the company pays me to do that. In fact, it is so important to my company for me to monitor my profits, that my pay is even tied to that. If I would like to get paid, I have to make sure that my company is profitable. In fact, if I go for an extended period of time showing no profit in my business unit, I'll be looking for a new job. So as you can imagine, there's some conflict. Do you see it? Can you see it developing? There's a little bit of conflict. There's potential for problems there because everyone wants more. Do you see? Absolutely everybody wants more. Can I tell you that I cannot remember the last time where I have gone an entire week at my job where an employee hasn't approached me and asked for more money. I can't remember the time that I haven't been approached by an employee for an entire week asking for higher pay. But you know what else I can't remember? I can't remember one single week in my job over the last 20 years where my management hasn't come to me and asked me for more profit. They want me to make more profit. The employees want me to pay them more money. So the company says, I want you to do more work and I'll pay you more money. And the employee, on the other hand, says, pay me more money and I'll do more work. Do you see the conflict? And so it's a balancing act. How do you walk that line? Most of you will recognize the name John D. Rockefeller. He was the founder of Standard Oil Company. 
And he was America's first billionaire. In fact, he had become a billionaire in the early 1900s before billionaires existed, and he was incredibly wealthy. In fact, by the time he died in 1937, get this, his assets totaled 1.5% of America's total economic output. Do you understand what that means? 1.5% of the gross domestic product of the entire country belonged to John D. Rockefeller. And if you were to control an equivalent share today, you would be worth $340 billion, which is twice as much as the two wealthiest men in America combined. You would have a lot of money. In fact, he had more money than he could ever find a way to spend. He had more money than he would ever need. And one day, a reporter approached John Rockefeller and asked him a question, which I think is very logical. I love it. He says, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And you know what Rockefeller said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. You see, he wanted just a little bit more. Employees want just a little bit more. Management wants just a little bit more profit. And so there's this conflict because absolutely everybody needs a little bit more. And so then this conflict arises. Profit-hungry employers force workers to labor in dangerous conditions for extended periods of time for very little pay. And then the next thing you know, America's first labor union was formed in, in 1881, and then the pendulum began to swing back the other way. And ultimately what happened was labor unions got such power that they began to demand extravagant wage and benefit packages, and they drove employers to bankruptcy because everybody wanted just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little more. So there's conflict. And I want you to know that the employer-employee conflict is not new. This is not something that's just has developed since the Industrial Revolution. This is something that's been around forever. And that's what our passage for today addresses. And so before we jump into that, just by way of introduction, I want to take a moment to help you understand the ancient concept of slavery, if we could do that. And because I think because of our modern history and the tragedy of slavery here in America, I think our understanding of slavery does not always align very well with the biblical concept of slavery. You see, when modern Americans think of slavery, I think that they often think of people like John Brown arriving on the western coast of the continent of Africa, breaking up families and stealing people away, rounding them up and stealing them away in the middle of night, in the darkness of night, and, and taking all these innocent people, as many as they could load onto their boat, and taking them to America where they would sell them to a southern plantation owner who may or may not have been sadistic and brutal and, and beating them all the time and mistreating them. Or I think maybe a more contemporary understanding may cause you to think of a young girl or an immigrant who is trafficked and who is used in prostitution or in, or in cheap labor. And I just want you to know that clearly the Bible speaks against this and it is a violation of Scripture because Scripture teaches us that anyone who kidnaps another human being, so if you steal a human being and take them away, that person is to be put to death. That's what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? And it also tells us that any slave, any worker who is brutally treated, who is punched in the eye or who is beaten is free to go home. He's free. He no longer has to stay under those conditions. He's not obligated to his master anymore. So clearly the treatment of slaves in America, clearly the treatment of slaves in modern America in human trafficking is a violation of Scripture. I just want to get that out there and have you understand that. And you do need to know that there actually was an element of that in ancient Greek and especially in ancient Roman culture as well. But listen, most of the slave-master relationships were very, very different from that. 
They were not quite like that. In fact, in Jewish culture, as you have heard previously, there were strict consequences for the treat, mistreatment of slaves. In Jewish culture, it was more like a contracted labor type of arrangement. In fact, in that kind of an agreement, every seven years, did you know that the slaves were set free in Jewish custom? Every seven years, the slaves were allowed to go free. Even in Greco-Roman culture, the slave may be responsible for some very noble tasks. You might be surprised to know that it was often the responsibility of the slave to tend to his master's estate. He would care for the crops. He would care for the animals. He would be responsible to attend the market on behalf of his master, and he would sell his master's wares and all of his master's produce. And often, can you believe that it was the slave who was responsible for the education and the discipline of the master's children in the home? He had slaves who did that. And in return, the slave and his family were cared for. They were treated well. They were fed. They were given suitable quarters to live. And in some cases, they were even paid. And they did their work. And all of that to help you understand that even though there were some sinful and oppressive slave-master relationships, that quite often those relationships were more like the employee-employer relationship that we have today. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to take you to our verse for today. And we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. And as we read through this, I'm going to ask that you would take the word employee and employer and plug it in wherever you see slave and master, okay? Because that's what it means. Now, follow with me through Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Slaves or employees, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So the very first thing that we see here with regard to the employer-employee relationship is that people who are filled with the Holy Spirit show the same submissive posture that we've seen through the past weeks. They show the same submissive posture in the marketplace that they do in their homes or in their domestic relationships. The command of Paul is for the worker to obey his master. The command of Paul is for the worker to obey his employer. Now listen, once again, as was the command for husbands to love and to sacrifice for their wives, you're going to see, uh, and you're going to see next week, this will be great when you find out that your kids are supposed to obey their parents. I want you to understand that you're going to find that the command for that to happen is in what we call the present active imperative. We've talked about that several times. And what that means to us is it is a continual action. It's an ongoing event. It's something that happens over and over and over again. So what Paul is saying is be continually obeying your employers. Do you see? It's a habit. It's a form of life. It's a pattern of living for you, for you as a spirit-filled believer to be continually continually obeying your employers. It must become a pattern of life for you just as much as obeying your parents is, just as much as submitting to your husbands is, just as much as loving your wives and sacrificing for them, even the way that Christ sacrificed for the church. You have to see yourselves as a believer who is commanded to be continually submissive and obedient to his employer. That's what the word is trying to teach us. That's Paul's intent. Now, in order for us to do that, We can only do that as we see ourselves as lowlier than they are, can't we? It would be impossible for us to submit to someone unless we saw ourselves as lowlier than they are. And so for us to do that, we have to see ourselves as lowlier than they are, and then we must align ourselves under them and obey their instruction. Are you still with me? You see, we don't get to pick and choose which commands we're going to obey. We don't get to pick and choose which orders we're going to follow. We don't get to pick and choose which directions we're going to obey and follow. 
Just as wives are continually to submit to the leadership of their husbands, so the employee is to continually submit to the leadership of his employer. Can I just tell you, as a manager, there are very few things that are as distasteful to me as an employee who says, that's not my job. Listen, friends, as believers, those words should never come out of your mouth. But it's not my job. Your job is to submit to your employer. Your job is to obey. It doesn't say that you get to pick and choose. Those words should never cross your lips. Your job is to do whatever your employer tells you to do according to the instruction of Scripture. You are continually submitting to him in all things. Your job is to do what he's asked you to do. But Paul was very careful, you know, to point out that our employers and our managers are only our masters as long as we are in the workplace. You see? It's important for us to understand. Your employer has authority over you only to the extent that it applies to the temporary earthly matters of the workplace and the market. It's really important. See, there's a reason that Paul brought this up. There's a reason that he said this, because when it comes to spiritual and moral things, the command to obey your employer does not apply to you anymore. Do you see? It doesn't apply to you anymore. That is not his realm of influence. He has His realm of influence is the marketplace. It's the office. It's your job. He may be your master there, but when it comes to spiritual things, he is not your master, and you must not submit to him. You must submit only to the instruction of Jesus Christ because you have one spiritual master. Do you see? Your master, ultimately, the one that you submit yourself to, is God Himself. It's Jesus Christ. And the reason that it was so important for the Holy Spirit to include that statement in this portion of Scripture is because in the early church, as slaves came to faith and began to worship God, do you know where they worshipped? They worshipped in the same place that the masters worshipped. They worshipped together. They went to the same gatherings as their masters. Now I want you to think of this. It would probably be pretty easy for a master to assume that because he's the master, that when he got to church, his position of authority carried over from the marketplace to the spiritual place to the place of worship as well, and that could easily create classes of privilege and lesser privileged believers. You following me? And so Paul is trying to guard against that. It is very important that we understand that in the church there is no caste system. I want you to hear me say this. It's important that you understand there are no divisions in the church. There is none better than another. In the church there are no slaves, there are no free, there are no male, there are no female. But we are all equally valuable members of one living body. It's important for us to get that. There is no one more or less important in the church because of his economic or social standing. We do not show favor to people who give more money in the church. We do not show favor to people who dress nicely in the church. We do not show favor to the people who have more and who exercise more influence in the marketplace. There is no one more or less important in the church because of his particular spiritual gifting either. Did you know that? Your pastor is not any more valuable to the church body than is the one who takes out the trash and who, who cleans the building and the one who serves in giving and the one who serves in faith. We are all functioning together as one single body and every single member has a unique and equally valuable role to fulfill and we need every single one of them. I want to take a moment again to pause and encourage you. This is very important. Root River Church will be crippled. Root River Church will be hobbled if you are not actively involved in the area of ministry for which God has designed you. Do you see? We will not be able to function the way that we should if each individual member is not working in the way that God has gifted and designed him to work. You need to understand that the church body, friends, is not a spectator event. 
This is not a place where you come to worship God and sit down and just enjoy listening to other people do their thing. This is not a place where you come to watch what's going on. You don't come here to be entertained. It's not an entertainment venue. You don't sit here to watch and enjoy everyone else's talent. It's a place where you come to worship and to build up the body of Christ by sacrificially exercising your unique combination of spiritual giftings, where you exercise your unique combination of talents to the building up of everyone else around you. Listen, friends, it's not about you. It's about everyone else here. And if every single one of you would embrace that rule, if every single one of you could embrace that principle, that church and the spiritual world is not about you, it's about everyone else, then can I tell you that we would flourish and we would all be built up and we would all be made strong and I can't imagine how happy we would all be. I can't tell you how often I hear from people who can't take their eyes off of themselves long enough to see the suffering of people who are in real need around them. And that's not what this is about. It's not about you. It's about everyone else. And if you're not involved exercising your gift and ministering to other people, the entire body suffers and the entire body is crippled. And so Paul tells us then that servants should be obedient to their masters. And how does he say that they're supposed to do that? I'm going to take you back to verse 5 and we'll move quickly. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would with Christ. So when I read this, and I read this fear and trembling thing, it always makes me feel like we're kind of afraid that we're going to get a beating if we don't obey and the opposite of what we're going for here. (laughs) I think that we could plug in the words reverence and respect there. That would be a good way to translate that. So he says, obey your earthly masters out of reverence and respect. You see that? And the reverence and respect that we have is not necessarily for the person, it's for the position. Do you see? This is important for us to know. Because if we're only respecting them for the person and their moral, their morality, and their integrity, at some point you're going to find a problem with them and you're going to lose your respect for them. Do you understand? Because they're sinners just like you are. But what we do is we respect them for the position that God has put them in. Whether they deserve it or not, we give them respect and honor for the position of authority that they have over us. You may think that your manager is the biggest goof that you have ever met. You may think that he is the most incompetent boob your company has ever hired. But remember that Romans 13 tells us that authority has been established by whom? It's been established by God. So whether you like it or not, God is the one who established his authority for you. Certainly he's used your company's leadership, but God has placed him in his position of authority over you, and he is there because God is the one who assigned him there, and there's a reason for him to be there. And I want you to know that it's quite possible that God knew that you would derive spiritual value from having to answer to an incompetent boob, right? It takes humility to do that, doesn't it? It takes humility to do that. I mean, maybe it's just simply the humility and the lowliness that you gain from being subordinate to someone who has a limited skill set. And maybe you find that as you submit to him, that you actually grow from the experience nonetheless. And maybe you find out he's not as incompetent as you thought. But listen, not only do we obey him, we should do it with a sincere heart. Isn't that what the word teaches? Some of your Bibles will translate that singleness of heart. And I want to help you understand that. Listen, your devotion, your attention, and your commitment in the workplace is not to be divided. Did you hear that? Your devotion in the workplace is not to be divided. So as you're working for your employer, as you're obeying him and showing him reverence and respect, you do it with a heart that is focused on the task at hand. This is important. Your attention must be focused on the task at hand. You are not working for your employer while your heart is planning and scheming another business venture. You are not working for your employer while your mind is in some personal fantasy land dreaming about your sweetie. 
You're not working for your employer deciding what you're going to do after work. You stay focused and you are to dig in and you are to commit yourself completely and single-mindedly to discharge your duties completely. You are wholly committed just as you would be if it were who? Christ himself who are your manager. That's what the word teaches. I wonder how many of us would give the same effort to Jesus Christ if he were our manager that we give to our boss now. Because if you think that you would ramp it up if Jesus Christ were your boss, I want you to know you're underperforming. Because that's the standard of Scripture, isn't it? That's the standard of Scripture. That we do it as if we were doing it unto Jesus Christ himself, as if he were the one that assigned the task for us. It's always interesting to me, and maybe you've noticed this, to watch workers' reactions when the boss walks into the room. Have you ever seen that? I just love this. It's actually kind of funny, and sometimes I play games with people, and they don't know that I'm doing it. But have you ever walked in, and you've seen a group of people gathered together, and you know, they're talking about things unrelated to work. Have you ever been there in your workplace? Uh, you know, probably talking about how great the brewers are. Maybe they're talking about you know, Downton Abbey and or whatever they're doing. And so they're all chatting, and they're gathered together, and they're doing their thing, and the boss walks in. What happens? All of a sudden, the conversation is over. And people are just scurrying around like crazy as they make their way back to the desk. All of a sudden, the conversation is just instantly over, and they disperse like they've never been talking. Have you ever seen that? Am I the only one that has ever seen that? How about this one? How about the guy who works harder trying to make it look like he's actually being productive than he would if he were actually doing his job? You know that guy? He works so hard trying to make it look like he's busy. He works really hard trying to make it look like he's actually doing something, when really, he's just sitting around and he would give the effort to his job that he's giving to making it look like he's busy, he would probably be the top performer. You know that guy? Mm-hmm. How about this guy? How about the guy that sits around and does nothing all year long? And then about three weeks before the annual review time, this guy's a rock star. You know what I'm talking about? When it's time for the annual salary review, all of a sudden this guy is the busiest guy you have ever seen. He's working harder than anyone else in the entire workplace. What about that guy? Have you ever seen him? He's committed for one month out of the year when everybody is watching him and it means money to him. But he's really not committed otherwise, is he? But what does verse 6 say? Let's take a look at verse 6. It says this, how do we obey? We obey not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man. Listen, friends, the bottom line is that people who are filled with the Holy Spirit should be the hardest working and the most dedicated employees in any company. Employers should be searching high and low for more believers to put on their payroll. The believer should stand out as unique in his workplace. Employers should never identify the believer as the guy who runs out of sick and vacation days by the end of January. The believer should never be identified as the guy who can't show up to work on time. The believer should never be identified as the guy who can't hold down a job. But on the other hand, his work ethic and his level of his commitment to his employer should bear witness to the fact that the Holy Spirit has done a transformative work in his heart. He should be the guy who goes the extra mile and does the finest work, even in the most difficult circumstances, with a smile on his face as he's filled with the joy of the Lord. And there's a song in his heart because the one who is thrust forward by the Holy Spirit knows that he is not working to please man. He knows that he's not working to please his employer. He is working as an act of thanksgiving and worship to bring glory and honor to a holy God. That's what he does. I had the great pleasure this last week of working on a project with a group of people, and among them was a believer from right here at Root River Church. And I can't tell you the sense of joy that I felt when the manager approached me and he pointed to that fellow believer and he said, this guy is a great worker. I love having him on my team. 
You see, that's proof that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the proof that he's being led by the Holy Spirit because he understands the concept of working as a servant of Christ and giving service with single-hearted devotion, focusing on the task at hand and honoring God with his work ethic. And it's a great testimony to the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit alive and working within his heart. That's what it means. That's the real proof. Well, we've discovered or considered briefly the employee's responsibility to his employer. And so, in closing... We're going to talk really quickly about the employer's responsibility to his employees. Those of you who were here last week know why that's funny, because that's homiletics 101 at the school of Beth Harms. <laughs> so I'd like to share that with you, if I may. Ephesians 6, take a look at verse 9, and we'll wrap it up quickly. Masters, this is your responsibility. Look, what do you do? Do the same to them. Do the same to your employees and stop threatening them. Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. That's pretty simple, isn't it? This is why it's not going to take very long. Employers, listen, you are to treat the employee in the same way that you want him to treat you. You are to work as hard for him as he works for you. You should submit to your will to them. You should prefer your employees over yourselves. Their well-being and their care should be more important to you than just a little bit more profit. Their well-being and their care should be a little bit more important to you than just a few more dollars. You should be willing to spend a little bit more to be sure that you're giving them the very best that you can. You should treat them from time to time. You should show them reverence. You should show them respect. You should honor them for their committed service to you. Your heart should be undivided in your commitment to provide for your employees and to protect them. Do you see? That's what the job is of the employer. You should be committed to their success to the point that you're willing to roll up your sleeves and put your hand to the plow and get a little bit of dirt underneath of your fingernails. After all, you all have the same master. Ultimately, you all have the same master. You have the same Lord. Listen to me, friends. God is not impressed with your position. God is not impressed with your title. You may be pretty impressed with yourself, but I want you to know that God is not impressed with your position, your title, your social standing. He's not impressed with that. He's honored by your humility. He's honored by your lowliness. He's honored by your gentleness. Your gentleness and your concern for your employees should be a testimony of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart as an employer. Did you see that? Well, we began this morning by considering the conflict that's naturally present in the employer-employee relationship. And I want you to know that really it's just a product of our sinful nature. Do you know that? It's a product of our sinful nature. The natural man can never have enough. Just like Rockefeller, he always needs just a little bit more. And so with all of the relationships that we've already studied, the point of failure is the point at which the man decides, I will be with you as long as I get what I want from you. Did you hear that? That's the point that every relationship fails whether it's the husband-wife relationship, whether it's the child and parent relationship, whether it's the employee-employer relationship, at the point where the relationship reaches its place where it says, I will be with you as long as I get what I want from you, it's failed. By then it's already gone. The moment that it requires commitment and sacrifice from me, I'm out of here. And I think that's the way it is in the world today. And the problem is that if that's our approach, we're basing our submission on our commitment, on our ability to sacrifice and reverence other people who are sinful. Do you see what I'm saying? I want to remind you that when we reach verse 21 of chapter 5, we said that submission comes not from your ability to honor and admire the guy that you're working for. It comes from your ability to reverence and honor Christ. And if you're unable to submit to your employer, if you're unable to submit to your husband, 
If you're unable to love sacrificially your wife, you've got a submission problem yourself. And it's not to the person in the relationship. It's because you can't submit to Christ. That's your problem. Because it's a command of God. Your wife and your husband, your kids, your employer, they may all be the most obnoxious and difficult people to love. And you may have absolutely no respect for them at all. But because you are thrust forward under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you're able to submit to them and to sacrifice for them based solely on your reverence and your respect for whom? Jesus Christ. See, when two people sacrifice and serve one another as an act of servants and reverence to Jesus Christ, whether they're husband and wife, whether they're parent and child, or believers in the body of Christ, employer, employee, whatever that relationship is, I want you to know if you're able to submit to one another to that extent, it is impossible for that relationship to fail. Do you see? Father, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy toward us. I thank you for the provision of good jobs. I thank you for the ability to provide for our families. And I pray, Lord, that as the people of Root River Church go out into the marketplace to labor and to work at our jobs, I pray that we would see it not simply as a a means of income. I pray, God, that you would help us to see our labor as an opportunity to show you honor and reverence. I pray, God, that you would lead us and thrust us forward by the power of your Holy Spirit, that people may see our work as a testimony of your greatness. Let people see our undivided hearts and our committed service and say of every single person in this church body, that guy's a great worker. I love having him on my team. And we ask that, we would, that you would empower us to do that to your praise, to your honor, and to your glory. In Jesus' name, 